Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the William Joseph Meyer Professor of Political Economy and the former chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University, where he has taught since 1972. As one of the leading economic thinkers of our time, he has written extensively on issues of economic policy and is a frequent contributor to national publications, especially the New York Review of Books. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Benjamin Friedman. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Friedman. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So to start, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your latest book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. I'm an economist. As you mentioned, I've taught for many years at Harvard. The two focus, uh, two areas of focus that I've uh, pursued in my work have been macroeconomics for listeners who are not familiar with the term. That means the behavior of entire economies, including features like why do we have unemployment from time to time? Why do we have business ups and downs? Why is there inflation in some periods? Why is the uh, country's trade deficit sometimes small and sometimes large? And also issues of macroeconomic policy, for example, fiscal policy, meaning government spending, taxes, uh, deficits, government borrowing, debt outstanding, and also monetary policy, meaning the policies of central banks, setting interest rates, purchasing bonds, uh, otherwise using the tools that central banks have to try to steer the macroeconomy. So this whole focus on macroeconomics and macroeconomic policy is one of the two areas uh, that I've pursued in my years as, as an economist. The second is the broader set of connections between economics and issues of moral uh, philosophy. My previous book uh, was called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. And now this one, uh, extending the meaning of the word moral, I suppose, into the religious territory. The uh, current uh, book is called Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. But both of these books taken together are an attempt to explore the links and influences between economics and economic thinking on the one side and these other, I would say, broader uh, areas of human thinking and human endeavor on the other. So I have a few questions about the book that I want to get into to really understand the thesis. So I've read quite a bit of it myself and found the premise to be extremely intriguing. So firstly, I wanted to ask you about the connection between Christian beliefs during the Enlightenment and the rise of capitalism. So as many of you probably know, the Enlightenment created an, an environment in which many of the basic tenets of Christianity were rethought. The essence of the Enlightenment and Renaissance thinking was humanism, the idea surrounding the free will and creative capability of mankind, ideas which led to a fundamental shift in the way religion impacted everyday life. So around the same time, the ideas of a free market, capitalist economy were being formed in Europe, ideas which at the time had their roots in philosophy. So given that religion was still a highly pervasive part of everyday life during this time, the rise of new forms of economic thinking were inevitably affected by it. So, Dr. Friedman, could you please tell us a bit more about the impact the Christian beliefs during the Enlightenment had on the development of capitalism? Yes, I'm glad to. The question that I take up first and most centrally in this new book is where economics as an 
intellectual discipline came from. And what I mean by economics, to be explicit, is our modern Western economics, the kind that uh, people like me teach in universities all over the United States and Europe and uh, in much of the world today. The usual story uh, points, as you just indicated, to the Enlightenment period of the 18th century, in particular, the Scottish Enlightenment of the mid to latter part of the 18th century, and then even more particularly to the contribution of Adam Smith in his great work, The Wealth of Nations. I accept all that, and I explain in the book why I do think Adam Smith deserves to be called the father of modern economics, and I outline uh, why that's so and what I think his um, important contribution was, and I'm glad to go into that if you'd like. But there's a second part of the standard story about where economics came from, and it is that because we regard the Enlightenment as mostly a move away from God-centered views of the universe in which we live toward what you just referred to as secular humanism, it therefore follows, so the usual story goes, that the intellectual input to economics has nothing to do with religion. And that's the point at which my book is a sharp departure from the standard thinking. I argue instead that a large part of what enabled Adam Smith and his contemporaries to reach the conclusions that they reached that gave us our modern economics was precisely uh, a change in the thinking of the English-speaking Protestant world about fundamental religious matters. The specific change in thinking to which I point is the movement away from belief in predestination as outlined by John Calvin uh, 200 years earlier, in brief, Calvin's idea was that whether any given individual was saved in the afterlife or alternatively condemned to an eternity of punishment was a question that was decided not only before that individual was even born, but before the universe was created. And so uh, the predestinarian view allowed no room for an individual's choices or actions to influence whether he or she was saved or was to be eternally punished. Now, at right about the time that Smith and his colleagues were coming into young adulthood and therefore forming uh, their view of the world, and I take this concept of a view of the world from Einstein, Right at the time when Smith and David Hume and others were forming their view of the world, the English-speaking Protestant community in places like England, Scotland, the United States, uh, were moving away from belief in predestination toward an alternative view that gave a much greater range of scope for human choices, human actions, human decisions, and along with that greater range of scope, conveyed a much more 
positive, a much more benign uh, view of the human character. And my central uh, argument in the part of the book about which you're asking me uh, is that it was this more optimistic, more benign view of the possibilities of the human character and this more expansive view of the possibilities for human choice and human action that uh, enabled Smith and his colleagues to come to the radical conclusions that they did. Now, uh, you pose an interesting uh, question in what you asked me a moment ago. Uh, why was it that these people uh, in their thinking about what we, after all, regard as a secular subject, were so influenced by religious thinking? Uh, I explain in the book that it would be just plain wrong to think that these were religiously committed individuals who were self-consciously trying to bring their religious beliefs to bear on their professional writing. These people were, were, were international celebrities in their own day. Uh, we know a lot about them biographically, and any claim that they were religious, committed religious believers would be just wrong. So what was it then? Uh, I turned to this notion of uh, the worldview, as Einstein put it, that people form a simplified view of the world, and they use that to come to their conclusions. Uh, Einstein famously said that not only physicists reason in this way, but other people too. Einstein pointed to painters, to philosophers. Smith was never never thought of himself as an economist. The word didn't even exist then. He was a professor of moral philosophy. And so I argue that because they lived in a world in which religion was so much more important and uh, multidimensional and pervasive than anything we know in the modern world, and because these ideas these new ideas about fundamental religious belief were subject to challenge and change at this time, these arguments were circulating all around Smith. He, he and Hume were exposed to these arguments all the time, and they could not have helped to be, but be influenced. So for these reasons, I think religious thinking was absolutely crucial for the inception of modern Western economics. And I argue in the further parts of the book that even though the economy has changed, of course, in major ways over the flow of time, and therefore the questions that economists put have changed, I think this right from the ground up influence of the religious thinking on the economic thinking has continued to be important, and it still is. All right. So, I mean, in my view, although it may not be apparent at first, a large part of the Western political culture and tradition is derivative of Judeo-Christian thinking, so which attempts to link moral purpose and reason. So ideas like freedom and liberty have been integral to the American ethos since the very inception of this nation and stem from the notion that humans have free will. So although these principles have deep roots, they have inevitably shifted over time, affecting economic thinking. So I want to move these ideas surrounding the enlightenment. If I may, if I may break in, uh, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I, it's not the subject of the book that I've just written, but I point out in the book 
that it's not a coincidence that these new lines of religious thinking were coming to the American world just at the time when we had our American Revolution and the creation of our new uh, republic. This movement away from predestinarian uh, Calvinism, uh, as I explain, was a kind of rolling phenomenon. It was at its height in England in the latter part of the 17th century. It was at its height in Scotland, where Adam Smith lived, uh, importantly, uh, right in the middle and uh, on into the latter half of the 18th century, right as he was coming to adulthood. And uh, it was at its height in America uh, in the latter part of the 18th century, to repeat, right when we were uh, becoming a new nation. And I think that's not a coincidence. Yeah. And so um, around the time of the Enlightenment, um, the, as you say, the belief system switched from, uh, you know, a, predest a predestination mindset, which which allows for a very restricted um, worldview in the sense that, you know, if you are born believing that everything that's going to happen to you in your afterlife is already decided for you. And keeping in mind that at the time, a large part of people's lives focused on the afterlife or, or you know, how to um, achieve salvation. Um, given that that was such a large part of people's lives, obviously, if they were born believing that no matter what they did, their afterlife could not be changed. Um, it was obviously going to lead to a lot more of a bleak worldview with a lot less um, motivation or no reason almost to go out and engage in these sorts of activities um, that people did in, in later years. Um, a belief system which developed um, around the time was deism, um, which um, held the idea that, you know, um, religion, so God was like a, a, a watchmaker. So, you know, he, he created the universe, but did not actively interfere in, in daily life. So these these sorts of shifts, these seismic shifts in in religious beliefs, um, I don't think that since the Enlightenment, th these shifts in religious thinking have really stopped. So I wanted to get your take um, coming after the founding of the United States, how our shift in religious thinking since the 1770s and 1780s, how how our religious thinking as a nation has shifted, and what impact that's had on our economic systems. Uh, I point to two major trends in the religious thinking of the Protestant world in the United States, uh, both of which I think have been influential in the way you mentioned. First, uh, although there are, of course, some predestinarian Calvinists in the United States today, as there are in England, as there are in Scotland, uh, these have remained very uh, few compared to uh, the bulk of Protestants, much less the increasingly diverse population, including uh, uh, Catholics, uh, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, you name it. So the kind of more expansive, more optimistic views of the possibilities for human choice and human action that are reflected in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations have, I think, continued to be dominant in our society. And in parallel, they certainly continue to be dominant 
in modern Western economics. There's a second trend, however, uh, a completely different dimension of religious thinking that I also uh, emphasize in the book, having to do with people's views about the ending of the world, not something that's uh, affected by uh, one's view of predestination or not. Um, in the uh, last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, right toward the end, there is a prediction of a thousand years of blissful existence free of evil. Uh, from the word for a thousand, this is typically called the millennium. And a crucial issue in Protestant religious thinking going all the way back to the writing of the New Testament uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, a crucial issue has been whether this thousand years of a better world will or will not be inhabited by human beings such as ourselves. There are two views of this, one uh, which we call pre-millennialism, uh, pre meaning that the world will end before this better period uh, comes. And second, that's called post-millennialism, post meaning that the end of the world won't come until after. Well, one might naively think that this is a uh, far-off uh, debate uh, having to do with things that don't bear much current day uh, implication, but it turns out that that would be wrong because one of them implies that it is possible to improve the world and that human beings such as ourselves will live in this improved world, whether we want to take that literally uh, as a specific thousand years or just an age of um, much better lives uh, for humans. And moreover, for because uh, Protestants typically associated uh, this improved world with the return of Jesus, uh, not only in, the, in this thinking, not only was it possible to make the world a better place, there was a religious imperative to do so because the sooner the world became a better place, then the sooner the second coming would occur. Now, by contrast, under the pre-millennialist view, uh, in which the world will end before, the world as we know it will end before this uh, period of uh, better time, and humans such as ourselves will not uh, get to enjoy that better time. Uh, there's a profound skepticism about the ability to improve the world, and certainly no religious imperative to try to do so, and therefore followers of the pre-millennialist view uh, have typically not been supporters of efforts to, uh, to, to, to bring about uh, social improvement. They've certainly been uh, supporters of efforts to bring about what they think of as moral improvement. So pre-millennialists were uh, active in the movement to ab abolish slavery. They were active in the movement to uh, movement for temperance, to eliminate drunkenness. But uh, secular improvements in the world were not on their list. 
Well, this uh, this is an area, unlike the first one, in which at least here in the U.S. and I think in uh, Canada too, uh, views have changed very importantly over the period, uh, starting in the mid to late 19th century. Uh, pre-millennialist views increasingly came to the fore. Uh, the person who helped make this happen was named John Nelson Darby, an Englishman who came to Canada and then briefly to the United States, uh, popularizing the pre-millennialist view. And from there, it took hold. And uh, beginning in the early part of the 20th century, it advanced further. And today, there are large segments of the uh, American uh, Protestant community, especially the evangelical uh, denominations, that are premillennialist in their theology. And I think this has had an important uh, impact on their views of economics and certainly their views of economic policy. And I think this really speaks to the heart of what economics is as a discipline. It's the study of, at least in part, the study of human behavior and so and how to affect that behavior. And obviously, religion is is very connected to human behavior. So how humans should behave, how humans should act in society, what the moral purpose of human beings is. And all those all those factors will inevitably affect the way that humans behave, um, you know, whether they give to charity, for example, or what role they play in, in government or what sort of political candidates they vote for. And then the sorts of economic policy that is then implemented by the people that they are for, um, for whom they're voting. So obviously there's they're very tied in um they're essential components in the lives of many people especially religious people and even going further um even people who may not um, participate in organized religion uh, a broader societal ethos um will will definitely have an impact on the way that people are raised um in a society a religious society and the way that people think um so if if there is a belief that society must be improved and that the connection of um you know improving society and raising living standards for everybody is a, a you know a, a religious goal um in a sense then then there's that, that creates a different sort of environment that creates different incentives for people to behave in certain ways than their worldview that you know, the, there's nothing we can do to change this world. It's going to end anyway. And so let's leave everyone to their own devices, um, you know, enjoy pleasures of the flesh and, you know, just wait for it all to die off. So th these sorts of um, th this contrast obviously will affect people's behavior. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to get your take on you know, where where exactly in American life do you see these sorts of um, religious beliefs more specifically um, coming into play? It's difficult to say just where we are now because the United States is so divided. If I can look back into the 20th century, <clears throat> I can <clears throat> suggest a, <clears throat> uh, a uh, give you a sense of the ebb and flow. <clears throat> I would say the two peak periods in which you saw this religiously inspired attempt to bring about secular improvement in the world were first the 1930s and second the 1960s. Uh, in the 1930s, this was uh, embodied in Franklin Roosevelt's uh, New Deal. Uh, not an accident that Franklin Roosevelt had been educated at Groton School where the headmaster, with whom he be, remained friendly for the rest of his life, uh, the headmaster was a very strong 
spokesman for post-millennialism. And I think much of the New Deal ethos, if not the specific policies, was very much an outgrowth of the post-millennialist view. I think the second time where you saw this was in the 1960s with the combination of the so-called Great Society programs pursued by Lyndon Johnson as president of the United States, as well as the civil rights movement pursued, endorsed by Johnson, but really uh, pursued by uh, uh, civil society. And once again, there was the idea that there could be and should be uh, secular improvements in the society. Now, we've experienced uh, periods of dominance in the other direction as well. I would say the 1920s was a time when the pre-millennialist view was very strong. I think it's no accident that the primary reform program of the 1920s was uh, prohibition, prohibition of alcohol sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages. Uh, This was Uh, primarily seen as a moral issue. Uh, I think uh, during the 1980s is another period when under Ronald Reagan, who was very much uh, a favorite of the evangelical community, uh, Reagan as well did not uh, favor uh, most uh, social improvement uh, programs. So I think this is something that comes and goes. Uh, Your question is really, I think, about where are we in the United States today? And uh, I think it's impossible to say because uh, our society uh, is very sharply divided. Everybody knows that. But uh, part of the thesis of my new book is that there is a religious underpinning to this as well. And as you hinted in your question, Uh, If you take a survey of Americans' opinions on things like, uh, should we have a larger government that does more or a smaller government that does less? Or if you take a survey of opinions on things like, uh, are poor people uh, at fault for their own poverty or are they stuck there for reasons not of their own making? And therefore, would it be a good idea to have some social programs to help lift the poor out of their poverty? It turns out that the answers Americans give to those questions are very sharply divided along religious lines. And I'm not referring to Protestants versus Catholics and versus Jews versus uh, whatever. I'm referring to divisions even within the Protestant community. So it turns out that for historical reasons that I outline in some uh, detail uh, in what I wrote, uh, people who belong to mainline Protestant denominations, as we term them, uh, denominations like the Episcopalians or the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Methodists, so forth, uh, these people are much more likely to be in favor of a larger government that does more. They're much more likely to have the view that uh, people can't get out of poverty on their own and should be assisted. And by contrast, members of the uh, evangelical denominations, 
to repeat, Protestant evangelical denominations are much more likely to take uh, the opposite view. Now, I argue in the book, this just cannot be a coincidence. It, it, we have lots of discussion in the United States about these divisions in Americans' views, but very rarely do people point to the difference between the mainliners and the evangelicals. But I think it's very important. And where does it come from? It comes from exactly this pre versus post millennial uh, difference that we were just talking about. So although the free market undoubtedly has deep connections with religious thinking, alternative economic systems such as Marxism and its many forms throughout history um, are almost entire, which are almost entirely secular in nature, have produced much worse outcomes for all the societies which have implemented them. So given this reality, what would you view then as the ideal trade-off between free market capitalism, which to some extent has its roots in religion, and a command economy, which is almost completely disconnected from religion altogether? So I just want to clarify that when I say free market, I don't mean that the state plays no role, just that its responsibilities are limited to protecting property rights and public safety. I, I don't think economists devote a lot of thought these days to the question that you're posing. Uh, you know, this is an interesting change. Uh, when I was uh, uh, first a student of economics uh, a long time ago, uh, I remember in the introductory economics course, uh, uh, the question was taken seriously. Was the United States with our free market economy, uh, as you put it, even though it's really a mixed economy, was the United States going to be able to outcompete the Soviet Union in those days? Well, it's been a long time since I've heard economists take that question seriously. And so uh, whether because of the religious origins or not, I think most economists and certainly I don't think there's much merit to centrally uh, controlled economies. I don't think even many Russians would like to go back to the days of the Goss plan or whatever it was called in the Soviet Union. Uh, the only genuine communist economies left that we have, I think, are Korea, North Korea and Cuba. And for goodness sake, uh, nobody wants to imitate those. So uh, to an economist today, the question that you're posing is uh, is a um, uh, at, at, at one level sort of something that we don't uh, we don't think about anymore. But your question was deeper than that, too, because you asked about the religious origins. And here I'm afraid uh, I'm uh, I may be a bit out of my depth because uh, I'm absolutely not an expert on the origin of Marxist economic thinking. To repeat, economists don't think about this much uh, anymore. I am well aware, uh, and I mention it in the book, that uh, there are people who view Marxism, Soviet-style communism, as a form of religion in and of itself. Uh, Billy Graham, for example, the great uh, Protestant uh, religious leader of the latter half of the 20th century, although he just died a few years ago, uh, Billy Graham was extremely articulate on the subject. Graham uh, believed that communism was a form of religion all in its own. So Graham would have said that it's not right to think of 
a free market economy as being grounded in religion and a communist economy as not being grounded in religion. He would have said they're both grounded in religion, but of course they're very different religions. Well, to repeat, I don't want to hold myself out as an expert uh, in any way on Marxist economic thinking. Uh, but when it, for the reasons I've just articulated, I think when we get to the religious origins part of your question about centrally planned economies versus uh, free market economies, I, I think uh, uh, there's more subtlety there than we're letting on. Okay, and there's there's a very specific reason why I, I asked this, um, and that's um, that's um, to do with where the country is headed over the next few years in terms of religious thinking and the role that it plays in shaping our economic systems. So it's no secret that Gen Z or you know the new generation, the youngest generation, is the least religious generation of all time, and organized religion arguably plays less of a role in their lives today than it did at any time in the past. Um, in you know, in in at the same time, um, you know, something like 76 percent of young people say that they would vote for socialist, um, which would have been unimaginable 50 or 60 years ago. So given this trend, um, assuming that religion and religious thinking continues to decline, how do you think our economic and political institutions will be affected going forward? Uh, to begin, I think it's a bit early to conclude that the society is headed toward um, a non-religious secular society. It may well turn out to be true uh, to a certain extent that's happened in Europe and in uh, Britain, but people have been predicting that for the United States uh, for longer than I have been alive. Uh, in the immediate post-World War II period, there was a substantial literature of what was called the secularization hypothesis uh, that predicted exactly what you're just talking about. And then for many years, the question was not, let's explore the secularization hypothesis, let's figure out why the secularization hypothesis turned out to be wrong. Well, it may now finally be turning out to be right. I think it's too early to say, and again, it, it, you have to be careful in interpreting these data because there is a great difference between patterns of religious belief and patterns of religious participation. If you ask questions uh, about participation, things like, uh, do you go to church once a week, uh, something like that, it's unambiguously clear that uh, people are participating less, that, that we know that. But if you ask questions that are not about participation, but about belief or about identification, what, what do you think of yourself as, there it's much less clear. And it turns out lots of people believe in something, but they just don't show up. Uh, I personally think this is a major crisis for the uh, organized religious uh, community. Uh, they're clearly not appealing to precisely the people who ought, uh, in principle, to be their constituency, but that's not for me to advise them. Now, where are we going uh, with this as a matter of uh, economic uh, policy? Uh, those religious groups in the United States, within the 
with within the Protestant world, which are <laughs> attracting more and more adherents and even some sign of more participation, turn out to be the evangelical denominations. So people like the uh, Episcopalians and the uh, Presbyterians and the Congregationalists are losing members, and many of the evangelical denominations, things like the Christian disciples, uh, the Southern Baptists, and so forth, uh, are gaining uh, uh, adherence. Now, if the pattern that I was referring to in the survey data uh, turns out to be to continue, uh, I think that uh, moves us in a direction in which the public will be less uh, willing to support uh, social reform uh, movements, less willing to support government initiatives, because it's the evangelical community who mostly embody the pre-millennialist theology, which leads them in a different direction. Now, finally, a word on uh, this finding, which is very interesting in itself, that uh, large parts of young people say they would vote for a socialist. I think the meaning of the word has radically changed. Uh, you know, there was a time when socialism meant government ownership of the means of production. Uh, I don't think anybody in American politics uh, supports that idea these days. I think what people in the age bracket you're referring to mean when they say they would vote for a socialist is that under some circumstances, they would be willing to vote for Bernie Sanders. Well, one may or may not want to vote for Bernie Sanders, but let's be clear, Bernie Sanders has never called for uh, for uh, Co collective ownership of the means of production. Bernie Sanders has never called for nationalized uh, ownership of industries, of factory and machinery, the way, for example, they had in uh, Britain in the immediate post-World War II period under the uh, Clement Attlee labor government, where they nationalized the railroads, they nationalized the steel industry, they nationalized the health service, they nationalized uh, a bunch of other things. Uh, I've never heard Bernie Sanders talk about that. So I think we have to be very careful about drawing inferences from the fact that the word socialism has a different connotation today from what it did uh, half a century or so ago. And I don't think when people say, especially young people who have no memory uh, and frankly, very little education about this earlier period. I don't think when people say they're willing to vote for a socialist, I don't think they have have any connection in that to what socialism traditionally meant. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Friedman. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed uh, being with you and lots of good luck with your program. Once again, thank you everyone so much for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.